Okay. Uh, thank you for coming today. And I want to especially thank uh, Dean Crusado Salas for setting up this wonderful colloquium for the Arts and Sciences College. Um, I've attended many of these lectures and uh, have been really pleased to have the opportunity to hear what my colleagues are doing. And I really uh, have relished the opportunity to share what I've been doing with all of you. So um, I will begin in a moment. In 1936, local newspapers in Winslow, Arizona and Gallup, New Mexico reported that women were inciting a revolt on the Navajo Reservation. For three years, John Collier, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, had pressured Navajos to slash herds in an effort to conserve severely overgrazed rangelands. When Collier first visited the Navajo Reservation in 1933, there were an estimated one million sheep and goats, or their equivalent in horses and cattle, uh, ranging on the land. The BIA and the Soil Conservation Service, which together implemented the stock reduction program that's the subject of my work, sought to bring that number down to the equivalent of about 560,000 sheep. And now trouble was brewing, the Gallup Independent claimed, in the language of yellow journalism, due to the dissatisfaction of the squaws over Collier's policies. Evidence of this simmering rebellion was admittedly meager. Very few Navajo women spoke English, and the government officials who created much of the historical record tended to ignore them. But the few clues that do surface here and, uh, here and there are suggestive. Consider the account of a community meeting near Cayenta where perhaps 250 Diné, as they call themselves, nearly all of them men, had gathered. Before them stood Dinahatso Hattie. Although almost blind from trachoma, she was the meeting's unquestioned, dominating leader and an aggressive and vigorous speaker. And this according to uh, E.R. Fryer, who was the uh, superintendent of the Navajo service, and he tells this story in his memoirs. Pointing her finger at Fryer, who had just been appointed to the Navajo service, Hattie denounced the government for their range policies. She spoke so heatedly and rapidly that Fryer's interpreter, Howard Gorman, could not keep up. Or perhaps Gorman was reluctant to translate Fryer's in, or uh, Hattie's invective. Nonetheless, it was clear that the woman did not blame government officials alone. She scolded Diné men, too, pointing at them as they hung their heads. Diné councilmen and community leaders had acquiesced to the wholesale slaughter of their flocks and the um, confining of flocks into grazing districts, bringing poverty and despair to the Navajo people. And Hattie um, held them all equally accountable. Now this story illustrates the significant but often overlooked part that Diné women played in resisting and remembering the environmental injustice known as Navajo livestock production. The term environmental justice, which was the subject of last week's J. Paul Taylor Symposium on social justice, is usually referred to or reserved 
for the recent political movement to fight for poor and marginalized racial or ethnic communities that bear the burden of our society's toxic waste and other environmental hazards. But noxious neighborhoods are not the only sites of environmental injustice. Between 1910 and 1933, the Blackfeet lost their right to hunt and fish in Glacier National Park. The Timbisha Shoshones became squatters on their own land when Death Valley became a national monument. And the Spanish land-grant communities of northern New Mexico lost their communal lands to the Carson National Forest and other forests, um, all in the name of conservation. Today, the indigenous people of the American West and Nuevo Mexicanos define their ongoing struggle with the federal agencies that dispossess them from land and from their livelihoods as battles for environmental justice. And I think this is a useful and sometimes unsettling way to think about <coughs> conservation conflicts. That said, John Collier's conservation program sought to address a real environmental and impending human calamity. He and his men had felt compelled to decrease herds drastically because Diné had allowed their animals to overgraze the land. And especially when coupled with climate change, beginning in the late 19th century, that overgrazing acutely accelerated erosion. Climate change, a long period of intense drought, followed by a new pattern of high-energy convective thunderstorms, uh, likely initiated the network of arroyas that even now scar the land. This is uh, a graph of the precipitation records taken from uh, tree ring records, from dendrochronological records that are on file with the uh, tree ring laboratory in um, Tucson. And according to the tree ring data, the 1870s and 1880s had been extremely dry, although punctuated by years of considerable rain. And then came the severe drought of 1899 to uh, 1904, shown right there, with scant snow and rainfall. Some years saw almost no precipitation. Not since the 1660s, and before then, the uh, 1250s, had the region suffered such painful drought. So this, the drought, um, it was perceived at the time by Navajos that during the 1930s was a period of extreme drought. But in fact, the drought had begun much earlier than that. Uh, and then that was followed by a prolonged wet period in 1905-1920, which you see shooting up high, the likes of which had been unseen for uh, about a century. Compounding the damage, some of the highly erodible sandstones in the area proved particularly um, sensitive to climatic shifts. And so in this period of wetness, kind of, you can see it continues a little bit through the 1930s and then we start getting droughts in the late 1940s through the 1950s again. The effect of livestock on this brittle environment was cumulative and dynamic. When livestock continuously defoliate favored forbs, grasses, and shrubs, they eventually kill the native vegetation that they prefer and encourage the invasion and spread of less palatable plants, both native and exotic. As vegetation density decreases, larger, pal uh, larger patches of soil become exposed to the baking sun, making them more arid. And as the patches of bare ground become wider, the wind begins to carry away the topsoil. As early as the first decades of the 1900s, 
increasingly crowded flocks on the reservation amplified by a handful of wealthy stock owners among the Navajos and competition also on the edges of the reservation by Anglo-American and Hispanic ranches, ranchers had depleted forage, restructured plant communities, and allowed greasewood, snakeweed, and other unpalatable and sometimes toxic plants to flourish. My book, Dreaming of Sheep in Navajo Country, which as uh, Waded mentioned will come out next spring, focuses in part on the, the role that women played in protesting and ultimately subverting the soil conservation program on the Navajo reservation. And I just thought I'd explain that that book is an interdisciplinary environmental history. It explores, as Waded mentioned, not only environmental change, but cultural identity, gender, and memory uh, during the New Deal era. Environmental history is probably unfamiliar to many of you, but it draws on not only on the kinds of archival records that most historians uh, rely on, but also on scientific literature and ecological theory. Many, like myself, also study the landscape itself, examining it as much, much like a historical geography geographer would, going out and actually looking at the physical landscape and trying to read it as a text to look at changes that have taken place over time. With the help of a mini-grant from the um, College of Arts and Sciences here at NMSU, I even chartered small aircraft and flew over the reservation, over most of the reservation at very low levels to try to get the kind of uh, landscape perspective that the New Dealers themselves had because it was during the New Deal that uh, the government initiated aerial photography and uh, aerial surveys to look at uh, the land. I discovered that although Navajos did indeed ravage the range by allowing their livestock to overgraze, federal officials made matters worse ecologically and culturally. Among their many mistakes, they ignored the importance of long-established cultural patterns. They disparaged local knowledge and cultural understandings of nature. And they refused to listen to Navajo's advice in implementing the livestock reduction program. Significantly, they disregarded women. Then they lived in a, what I call, I coined the term, a matricentered society. Basically, all of Diné life centered on women at this time. Uh, spiritual beliefs, kinship, residence patterns, land use traditions, and economy. Women typically owned a large share of the sheep and almost all of the goats. Collier recognized this. And yet when he and his staff sought Navajo approval for the conservation program, they excluded women from the decision making. The New Dealers failed to treat Navajos as real partners in developing a and implementing a workable conservation program. And the result, this is my argument for today, the result has been a collective memory of trauma, a long-standing rejection of range conservation policies and a chronically de degraded landscape. I first began to understand the power of memory in the summer of 1996 when I traveled to the Navajo Nation to begin my research. The Navajo Nation is an arid yet awesome landscape of luminous red rock mesas and canyons, dried up sagebrush and snakeweed, and vast expanses of naked sand. Enclosing some 25,000 square miles of the Colorado Plateau, as most of you know, it mainly covers Arizona, but it spills over into New Mexico and into Utah. Beyond those boundaries, 
particularly uh, in this area over here, but also down here lies a mixed-use area in which Navajo uh, federal, state, and privately owned lands exist in a patchwork that has been nicknamed the checkerboard. And together, the reservation and the checkerboard are the subject of my study, and they constitute what the Navajos call Dinebikea, or Navajo country. And like most Biligana, or Anglos, before I started this study, when I thought of Navajo country, I imagined the iconic spear, uh, spires of Monument Valley and Canyon de Chez, the otherworldly badlands of the Bisti uh, wilderness and the painted desert, or the desolate stretches of road through shrub grasslands. I soon discovered, though, that this land with elevations ranging from 5,000 to 10,000 feet above sea level is remarkably diverse. <coughs> A short drive across Narbona Pass through the heart of Navajo country took me from the ponderosa pine forests and iris-dotted meadows and lakes of the mountain highlands to the pinyon juniper woodlands of the foothills down to the shrub grasslands of the San Juan Basin. Now, historically, most Diné have used this ecological diversity to support a pastoral life, often in combination with dryland farming. Uh, but I, I need to acknowledge that there were also farmers, or people who were primarily farmers, particularly in well-watered places like Canyon de Chez, uh, Canyon del Muerto, and um, the terraces of the San Juan River. But as I checked into the Navajo Nation that June 1996 evening when I was beginning my research, I was flabbergasted at the headline on that week's Navajo Times newspaper, which read, Council asking for livestock adjustment. It seemed to me, in the words of the immortal words of Yogi Berra, like deja vu all over again. That summer, the paper proclaimed portions of Diné Bikeya were experiencing the worst drought since the 1930s. Now, although that claim was actually hyperbole, the extremely dry conditions led the Navajo Nation Council to declare a state of emergency and call on the Diné to reduce their numbers of cattle and sheep and thereby protect the land from further damage. And indeed, the reservation was in terrible shape. This is actually a better condition picture that I took the, the next year. I would not have seen as much grass as is present in this in that year of 1996. Driving along the highway, I saw a small flock of sheep by the road looking for all the world like they were eating dirt. There wasn't a blade of grass anywhere and the brush had shriveled. I had come laden with boxes of vegetation field guides, thinking I would use this opportunity on the Navajo reservation to learn to uh, identify plants and thereby be able to read the landscape and understand how changes had taken place over time. But the brush was so parched that, I mean, it just looked like burned up dead stuff. I couldn't tell the difference between snakeweed, uh, sagebrush, um, well, I could tell sex snakeweed, but nothing between like sagebrush and greasewood. Drought scorched the earth, but at the root of this barren landscape lay decades of overgrazing. Casey Begay, who was then head of the grazing management office for the Navajo Nation Department of Agriculture, pointed out, you can tell when you come to the reservation land because of the dust storms. And likewise, you can tell when you leave reservation land because you see grass. Similarly, in a horseback tour of the Navajo Range a month earlier, Albert Hale, who was then president of the Navajo Nation, 
was shocked to find that overgrazing and drought had left some of the reservation completely denuded, dotted with dead and dying livestock. Rick Tafoya, a range specialist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, observed that although there were still good grazing lands at higher elevations, the worst areas had deteriorated to a point where no one living today will ever see it healthy again. Navajo officials characterized the situation as dire, which made the newspaper story about selling off livestock all the more interesting. In the first place, it emphasized that the Navajo Nation Council blamed drought, not overgrazing, for denuded lands. Now, the original wording of the Council's declaration had referred to depletion of range forage as the cause of the emergency. But after a four-hour debate, the Council changed the official rationale for the adjustment program to drought conditions caused by a lack of moisture. In the second place, instead of calling for livestock reduction, the council chose the euphemism livestock adjustment, which bore a more ambiguous meaning. And actually, this change in language took place during the New Deal itself. As the program became increasingly less popular, new programs were implemented calling for adjustment rather than reduction. Significantly, too, President Hale announced through his spokesperson that adjustment merely meant that the Diné should comply with their grazing permits, and he emphasized that adjustment would be voluntary. Now, certainly complying with grazing permits would be a step forward, but it seemed obvious to me that the land could no longer sustain nearly 300,000 sheep, and I wasn't alone. A growing chorus of Diné environmentalists and officials charged that overgrazing was ruining the land without regard for future generations. Ivan Joe, a Diné range specialist, then working with the grassroots environmental group Diné Care, told a reporter with High Country News, the regional environmental and western newspaper, that it was time to address overgrazing. He said, regardless of whether it's right or wrong politically, it's the right thing environmentally. Someone has to take a stand. But the Navajo Council members, knowing well that enforcing grazing regulations was, as they said, political suicide, they were skittish, and they weren't the only ones. When the Council called on the Bureau of Indian Affairs to conduct the so-called adjustment program, the agency balked. According to the Navajo Times, while the BIA was pleased to learn that tribal officials were addressing range conditions, the last thing the agency wanted to do was to be the bad guy in the latest scenario to force the Navajos to reduce their livestock. There was a political cartoon that came with that livestock adjustment um, article that I'd like to kind of read for you. I need to step away to look at it. If you look at it from uh, right to left, you see the first guy on the horse he has uh, his hat on it. You can't really see it very clearly, but it says red across his hat. And he's wearing uh, his beads that symbolize that he is a Navajo man. Uh, and he's with, he symbolizes that he's with the grazing service on the Navajo reservation. And he says, I can't tell him, you tell him. And so the next person, the Navajo Nation councilman sitting on the horse, says, we can't tell him, you tell him. 
And so the third guy who has BIA across his hat said, well, all right, I'll tell him. We want you to adjust your livestock. And then the Navajo man says, you mean livestock reduction? No way. This is all I have. What I thought was the most interesting about this um, little cartoon is these figures here. This cartoonist, uh, these are his stock figures that he uses to comment on what's going on. And first of all, this figure here is a traditional image of Hatali or healer, um, the um, religious man in their society who says, Lord, help us get the evil out of government. And this is a coyote. He's always making comments on things. And he says, John Colley days. And John Colley was the name that many Navajos used uh, to refer to John Collier. And I never have quite figured out because this is the term they often used in the historical record in the 1930s. And I never could quite get whether they were thinking they were mishearing his name or they were referring to him as a dog. Because they do, in the historical record, say things like, you know, there's a rat going across, there's John Collier uh, going across the ground or whatever. So I haven't quite figured out what that uh, is supposed to mean, but at any rate, this is referring to the livestock reduction program. While in some areas of the reservation, Diné stock owners lined up to sell thousands of head of livestock and the most massive reduction of herds since the 1930s and 1940s, the reticence of political leaders to impose livestock reduction was certainly understandable. Elderly Diné still bitterly remembered the massive slaughter of goats, sheep, and horses during the New Deal. In those years, after an initial voluntary effort, John Collier had forced Navajos to sell their surplus stock, and the government had shipped many of the animals back east or processed them in a cannery on the reservation. Mostly, however, range managers had killed the animals where they stood because the cost of getting them to market was higher than their value and the canneries were glutted with um, meat and working to capacity. In some communities, officials allowed the Diné to butcher the slaughtered animals and take the meat home. In fact, there was a directive that came out uh, once everything was kind of glutted and the goat reduction program was sort of falling apart in terms of its coordination. They said you can let people just butcher and jerk the meat for home consumption. But some places implemented that and other places that became the heart of the resistance movement did not implement it that way. One member of the Navajo Tribal Council, in fact, Albert uh, Sandoval, had encouraged the government to permit the Diné to reduce their herds by consuming them. But his suggestion had largely not reservation-wide, but largely fallen on deaf ears. And in communities across the reservation, the government had simply bulldozed the animals into mass graves. Now, it's important to note that Diné had experienced livestock reduction in different ways during the 1930s, depending on where they lived, on their degree of geogra uh, ge geographical isolation, on their social position, their wealth, their gender, their education, all those kinds of things. And their personal memories of the, area, of the era reflect those kinds of differences. For some, livestock production had been an assault that came suddenly, like the wind with no warning. 
They tended to recall the New Deal program as a bewildering reign of terror, one in which government butchers destroyed all that the Diné held dear. Others had been acutely aware of the increasingly degraded landscape, had recognized the need to decrease herd sizes, and in some cases had served as range riders for the Navajo service and helped round up stock. So different people told different stories about the stock reduction era. But the heavy handedness with which the federal government had carried out this program helped to produce a single hegemonic collective memory of terror, betrayal, loss, and grief. That social memory leads the ecological crisis that stock reduction hoped to address and continues to complicate government efforts to manage the range. Over the past couple of decades, historians and anthropologists have explored the various ways in which societies help to create, convey, reproduce, and understand collective or social memories. Like individual memory, collective memory is selective. It's an appropriation of the past in order to think about or talk about present day concerns. Oftentimes, as historian David Blight points out, social memory thrives on grievance and represents a contest between rival versions of the past. Blight notes, the historical memory of any transforming or controversial event emerges from cultural and political competition. In other words, it arises from a struggle to manipulate the meaning of the past. Historian Pierre Nora uh, argues that collective memories are rooted in lieu de memoir, especially celebration and particular often sanctified places that are commemorated by markers or memorials or rituals. Other scholars emphasize that collective memory is performative, arising through specific kinds of commemorations and bodily activity. In some instances, these performances may take the form of oral narratives passed down from grandparents to grandchildren. Um, and this is particularly true in societies like the Diné, where the oldest living generation often cares for children while their parents are away at work. Among the Diné, many of the classic ways of creating and reproducing social memories have played no part as far as I can tell, and yet memories remain vivid. There have been, to my knowledge, no special commemorations of this tragic event as there have been for, say, the sacrifices of World War II soldiers or the um, highly celebrated actions of the Navajo Code talkers. Nor has there been any effort to memorialize it with markers or monuments as there has been with that other major turning point in Diné history, the so-called Long Walk to the Bosque Redondo in eastern New Mexico where Diné were incarcerated in the 1860s. Instead, everyday experiences have kept remembrances both personal and collective alive. It was goat reduction especially in 1934 that has colored memories of the livestock reduction program. Diné valued goats in ways that Collier and his men never fully grasped. Conservationists targeted these animals because they had little market value and they damaged both, both rangelands and forests, and so they mandated the elimination of nearly all the goats. And yet for many Diné, goats measured the difference between feast and famine. 
Many subsistence herds consisted largely of goats for a lot of reasons. One is that they're hardier and they survive winters better than sheep and so are more dependable as a source of food. They're also browsers and so great parts of the reservation aren't so much grasslands as they are shrublands and so it provides the kind of uh, forage that uh, goats can eat. And families could drink goat's milk and eat goat cheese and meat while reserving their sheep to breed or barter at the local trading post and the loss of these goats would prove to be devastating. The Diné tried repeatedly during the New Deal to shape the goat reduction program and subsequent livestock reduction programs. When Commissioner Collier brought the plan before the Navajo Tribal Council, Councilman Henry Tolleman suggested that they wait and discuss it with the people back home and then, and I quote, act upon how the livestock can be reduced to the best satisfaction of the people. Chidach, the wealthiest stock owner among the Diné and a widely respected leader, asked Collier to spare those with flocks smaller than 100 head. And actually on this meeting, Collier listened carefully and thoughtfully. Uh, this would be one of the very last times that he would really listen to Diné concerns. And he responded that it might even be possible to help poorer families uh, replace their goats with sheep. That would get rid of the goats and still provide them with the livestock they needed to live on. So Collier's assurances at this meeting laid the council's fears to rest and the men unanimously resolved to encourage their people to sell half their goats with the proviso that the delegates would ask the people back home, and I quote again, to consider the matter and devise ways and means for carrying out the program. I should just note in passing that this idea of substituting sheep for goats never transpires. <clears throat> a poor planning of the goat reduction hindered Collier's men from the outset. The remote locations of many herds made it difficult to drive them to railheads. In one notorious incident, Carl Beck, a stockman for the Indian Service, purchased 3,500 heads of uh, sheep and goats around Navajo Mountain, which is an utterly remote uh, location in the extreme northwestern part of the reservation. In fact, in 1996, when I first, or yeah, 96, when I first visited there, it was very difficult to get there then. Now they've paved the road. But before long, Beck realized that the animals would never survive the long trek to the nearest passable road uh, where they could be picked up, picked up by truck. And so he herded them into a tributary of Jones Canyon, ordered them shot in mass, and left them to the coyotes, buzzards, and crows. Ernest Nelson, a Diné Hitali, or healer, told a visitor in the 1970s, today you can see all those bones scattered about Canyon Trail. The mass slaughter of goats had particularly anguished Diné women who owned most of those flocks. Two generations later, hard feelings understandably remained among elderly Diné. And then after the goat reduction program in, in 1938, the New Deal conservationists, after kind of a lull, the New Deal conservationists shifted stock reduction into high gear. They issued permits for the maximum number of sheep, goats, and horses a family could own, and this time they targeted horses for reduction. 
This is in part because there were thousands of nearly feral horses that ranged across the reservation and because each horse <coughs> consumed as much as five sheep. So they saw for every horse they could get rid of, five sheep could be kept. Oh, I meant to show you the bones that Ernest um, talked about. E.R. Fryer, who was by then superintendent of the Navajo Service, which is the agency that oversaw the Navajo Reservation, initiated a roundup of thousands and thousands of generally emaciated horses across the western part of the reservation. Most were transported to processing plants and turned into dog chow, chicken feed, and glue, but hundreds died of starvation along the way to shipping points or were shot while trying to make a break from the herd. Dead horses lined the trails to the, red ho uh, to the railheads, and the putrid stench of their rotting carcasses permeated the air. This specter, like the wanton slaughter of goats, etched deeply into Diné memory. And I have the accounts of the dead horses, even from the Navajo service officials themselves. Oral narratives, and what we might call landscapes of remembrance, have created a particular public memory of livestock production, especially goat and horse reduction, a memory of a traumatic episode that ultimately affected nearly every Diné family for a decade and sparked widespread resistance. Again, the landscape itself offers grisly reminders of the violence of goat reduction. Piles of bones protruding from the earth add veracity to the oral stories of mass slaughter. Pete Sheen, a Diné stock owner, recalled the scene in Kayenta, where range riders rounded up 3,000 goats and sheep into a corral and shot them. I myself saw it happen right in the corral, he told a visitor one day in the 1970s. Some of the horses, or some of the bones, still remain today, all piled up. And you can see dried blood on a cliff where they drove the sheep and killed them. Also in the cave of a place called Line of the Red Cliff, a little way off from Kayenta. Most importantly, elderly Diné have continued to remember this electrifying event by locating themselves in relationship to it, forming what uh, historian Alfred Young has called a flashbulb memory, sort of like a strobe light kind of memory. There are many reasons why livestock rejection imprinted itself on the mind's eye. Stock owners lost most of their herds, and those who didn't uh, lose livestock themselves had family members who did so. Even the minority who worked as government agents helping to round up animals also suffered, suffered trauma as they faced the opprobrium of their neighbors. Thousands experienced the event as cataclysmic, a calamity from which they never recovered. Navajo oral histories of this era, as historian Robert McPherson has pointed out, tend to emphasize certain patterns or tropes. Rich vegetation carpets the range until malicious range riders arrive without warning and wantonly kill helpless animals in cold blood. Women weep and their animals run around crying for their mothers. Men feel powerless against the violence and families are left destitute. Listen to the words of Howard Gorman, the man who was the translator for E.R. Fryer he was his special assistant. He later became vice chairman of the Navajo Tribal Council. Gorman could never erase the mental images of that infamous period, and he still remembered it so vividly 
uh, nearly four decades later when he was interviewed in the 1970s. It was a terrible sight where the slaughtering took place, he recalled. Near what is now the trading post was a ditch where sheep intestines were dumped. And these were scattered all over. The women folks were crying, mourning such a tragic scene. The butchery he had witnessed at the Hubble trading post near his home outside Ganado, Arizona, remained vivid. The carnage seared his memory. Like Gorman, Billy Bryant remembered that day as, or that time as though it were yesterday. One day in October or November of 1934, a range rider for the BIA rode up to Bryant's uh, wife's homestead and forcibly seized, seized the family's flock of goats. Thinking back to that terrible day, Bryant bitterly recalled the indignity and powerlessness he felt in the hands of government officials. Our goats were put into a large corral where they were all shot down. Then the government men piled the bones in a big heap, poured oil or gasoline on them, and set fire to them. This happened just below Coal Mine Mesa at a place called Covered Spring. One still can see the white bones piled there. Not only the goats, but the sheep too were slaughtered right before the owners. Those men took the meat off our tables and left us hungry and heartbroken. And Sarah Begay recalled those nightmares too. Out of the blue, some men rode up to her place in Narrow Canyon near Kayenta and killed her goats. They did it right before my eyes. I was there with my husband. They took so many. And some were actually her mothers, others were her sisters. That is enough, it is enough, I tried to tell them. But the men ignored her. They herded the goats into a place behind a bluff where she says they beat them with clubs and then shot them. Some of the women were really crying, she remembered. That is why we don't sleep well sometimes. All we think about is that. Bitter about the loss of their goats and later their sheep and horses, many Diné openly rebelled against the distribution of grazing permits. Some refused to accept their permits or burned them. Others petitioned Congress to bring an end to the program, and many more protested by hiding their sheep and horses. A handful even responded by physically attacking range riders or other officials, and still more went to jail for failing to comply. Ironically, the very documents that the government required stock owners to maintain and the ensuing inter- and intrafamilial uh, grazing conflicts that arose have stoked the flames of a collective memory of the years when men and women defiantly burned their permits and went to jail for exceeding their legal livestock limits. Along with the horrors of goat reduction, grazing permits have made an indelible mark on the Diné and their memories of the 1930s. And I just thought I'd point out with this particular one for Dishface and his wife, actually most of them were made so out solely to the man in the family, the male head of household. Uh, and this shows that in District 12, which um, hmm, I think might be up around Shiprock, if I'm not incorrect, mm, I'm not sure about that, but at any rate, um, he was limited to 160 head of sheep, or sheep units as they called them, and a horse counted five sheep units, so let's imagine that he had a family of four uh, fairly adult people, so that he needed four horses for transportation, and that was you could have four to ten, depending on where you lived, as the maximum number of horses you could have, but they counted as five sheep. 
So 4 would, times 5 would be 20. So he would be allowed to own 140 sheep to support his family on in this case. And they range from a little over 200 to sometimes 61 sheep units being the maximum number that people could keep. Stories of rebellion and loss have reverberated across the reservation throughout the years as grandparents pass their recollections to their grandchildren or reminisce about the days when they had lots of sheep. But the power of these stories is a collective memory amplified in the 1970s when Ruth Russell, a leading Diné educator, and Broderick Johnson compiled these oral histories into a book which Johnson illustrated. Now the book itself, which I used heavily in my research, uh, reveals a variety of viewpoints that existed during the 1930s, including the memories of Diné range riders and recollections of eroded uh, rangelands that spurred the government to act. And yet Johnson's drawings mainly depict violence and grim scenes of animals being burned alive. And along with that, the book's pointed title, Navajo Livestock Reduction and National Disgrace, makes a pointed political statement that overshadowed those multiple perspectives uh, and the larger historical record. It's also obscured the fact that rebellion against stock reduction did not begin immediately uh, and, some, and not even then it didn't appear everywhere. Some areas implemented the program in more humane ways than others and that substantially lessened the shock of stock reduction in some uh, regions. When glutted canneries temporarily, temporarily halted new shipments, officials in the Ganado era, area, for example, decided to allow stock owners to butcher their animals themselves and take the meat home or, or sell it to the trading post. Tully Lincoln, a Diné man uh, at Ganado, later recalled the event almost nostalgically. He said, people had so much food at the time that they walked in meat. Now Lincoln's recollection should give us pause. For it suggests that there might have been an opportunity to create a different set of memories of the 1930s, ones that might have challenged the social memory captured by the title, Navajo Livestock Reduction and National Disgrace. Some tribal councilmen, after all, had urged Collier to allow families to slaughter and consume their own flocks to meet the reduction targets. And this was dismissed by uh, the BIA as something that would not really happen and anyway it would go too slow. And across the reservation, the Diné responded to the livestock reduction program with a flurry of traditional blessing way ceremonies which were de designed to restore hojo or balance or equilibrium to the land. Conservationists disparaged those ceremonies as superstitious. But they might have instead reflected, or they might have reflected on the fact that these ceremonies always incorporated great feasts of sheep and goats. Great feasts across the reservation, whether as part of ceremonies or as part of the familial production of preserved meat, might have changed the whole tone of stock reduction. And in my book, I outline a lot of other things that they might have done as different strategies for reducing the numbers of livestock on the reservation. They might have, for example, um, have shifted them onto other lands off the reservation. There were 
lands in the Zuni Mountains that they could have purchased. There were lands that the Babbitt Brothers ranching operation offered to sell them that had been part of a traditional range and it was in lost better shape. They might have created an, um, something like uh, the grass, uh, grass banks that's the right word, yeah, grass banks that we now use today up in northern New Mexico to take pressure off of forest range lands uh, and put them onto other uh, lands, let the, the um, grazing lands recover. Um, they might have encouraged uh, big stock owners like Chi Dodge, to, uh, who owned 5,000 head of sheep and goats, to, uh, he had lots of money, he could have leased land off the reservation, they could have taken 5,000 head off immediately if they had provided or helped him to provide uh, land for his sheep somewhere else. The New Deal, what we do know is the New Deal conservation program could not possibly have worked as long as policymakers ignored the values and ideas of the Navajo people. When conservation is high-handedly imposed measures that were profoundly antithetical to Diné culture, they helped to begin the process of their programs unraveling. And that is perhaps the central lesson of this episode in the environmental history of the American West. In our quest to restore ecological diversity and conserve land, we cannot ignore the people who make their living from it. That constitutes environmental injustice. And this story suggests that environmental injustice has ecological consequences as well. In the 1990s, a Diné man with the Navajo Department of Forestry told the ethnogeographer Patrick Pines that most people now will not, and I quote, touch grazing issues on the reservation with a 10-foot pole. I myself, when I began just doing this research about the history of stock reduction, was warned by a young Diné man who wished me luck and thought that the range was overgrazed and we needed to think about these things. But he said, I hope they don't stone you for even looking at this question. In their crusade to save the land, federal agencies rendered the Navajos nearly powerless over their own lives, and that is an essential characteristic of environmental injustice. As with the struggle of the Western Shoshones against nuclear testing on their reservation, or the efforts of the Wallapai to retain rights to the Colorado River, the underlying issues are power and control. Notice how the Navajo story differs from that of Anglo ranchers who reluctantly came under the Taylor Grazing Act during the same time and were regulated about how much uh, livestock they could range on public lands. Those ranchers gained a powerful voice in the administration of public lands which they themselves managed and thus controlled through local grazing committees. By contrast, federal conservationists managed every aspect of the Navajo program. The resulting economic and cultural impacts of stock reduction and grazing management proved reprehensible, a shock from which the Diné are only now beginning to recover. In their myopic focus on restoring the land, New Deal conservationists lost sight of the fact that a truly sustainable relationship with the natural world requires an ethical relationship with the land, with those who people it, and with the cultures that give it meaning. The struggles over the Navajo Range echo in conflicts that continue, not only on reservations, but throughout the American West, where some 70% of the land is used for livestock grazing. 
At their essence, these battles reflect two conflicting ways of thinking about land. The one held by environmentalists conceives it as an ecological system that can best be understood through and sustained by science and technology. The other held by ranchers views it as the substance of their family's livelihoods and the place of their dreams. Both ranchers and environmentalists must strive for sustainable ways of managing the land. To do that, we must find ways to treat each other with respect as partners in creating ecologically, economically, and culturally coherent approaches to conservation. Denae memories preserve a history of stock reduction that continues to shape life and land. In the early 1980s, Charlie Butsoy, a tali from Cayenta, recalled the struggles and sorrows of the New Deal era. When they reduced the stock, many men, women, boys, and girls died. They died of what we call, and excuse my Navajo pronunciation here, but they died of what we call cheina, which is sadness for something that will never come back. One woman, by then quite elderly, confessed to the ethnographer Charlotte Frisbee that her sheep, though long gone, were never far from her mind. When I go to sleep, I dream about herding sheep. I know as I get older, I'll do what others have done. I'll start imagining all of that in my mind, even during the day. People do that when they get really old. They talk about the sheep day and night all the time. She's saying older people got addled and spent their days talking to their sheep, their imagined sheep, and worrying about their welfare. She went on, it's like they forget everything else except the sheep. That's because that's all we were raised with. That's all we did, take care of the sheep. Today, today Dene gather each year to celebrate the return of the old Churva sheep to the red rock mesas and canyons of the Navajo Nation. Dene weavers had long favored the lanky Churva sheep for their straight, long staple, nearly greaseless wool. And federal officials, actually federal officials during the New Deal tried to figure out a way to make a hybrid of the Churva sheep and more marketable sheep to create a more marketable one and they gave up on that. I couldn't improve upon the Churva sheep and so they just got rid of the Churva sheep and introduced more marketable breeds. Now some Diné are active in reviving the Churras. Sheep is life, proclaims the celebratory, annual celebratory gathering, uh, which is kind of part festival, part extension service workshop, part 4-H um, fair. People come from all across the reservation to think about acquiring a flock of Chura sheep. They come to see the sheep that their grandmothers once called their own. And as the people cluster to watch the animals parading before the competition judges, you can see it in their eyes. You can see them imagining their grandmother's land blanketed with bleeding sheep. As they look over the land of their imagination, they continue to dream about sheep. Thank you. Collectively, because most of your evidence seems to come from 
um, oral history. Uh, and I'm wondering, you made a comment earlier in your talk about how there seems to be a lack uh, of this sort of public ritual uh, remembrance. And I'm wondering if you have any ideas about that. That's a question. I, um, I, that yeah, I guess I, um, hmm, I have to answer that. This is a celebration of the old sheep, but they don't really talk at length about how they came to lose their sheep. So I haven't actually, uh, I haven't actually thought of this as a kind of memorial, but in a sense it is. But because it, it's more, it's less about talking about the loss that they experienced and more about talking about how to get more sheep uh, of this particular breed. Um, on the other hand, in a sense, I guess, because they do have the workshops that talk about the uh, ceremonial rituals that go with raising sheep, they talked about, uh, and just parading the sheep around and all that, it is a kind of commemoration. They're now doing uh, many uh, Sheep is Live workshops that focus on this particular topic. To me, this is more about promoting the breeding of an, a new, uh, of an old breed uh, and celebrating weavers who really want this uh, long staple wool back again. Uh, I haven't thought about it as being an uh, oh. annual commemoration, but if, 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 if you think about it that way, it is the only one that I know of that goes on. And very little talk about it. I actually did no oral history interviews myself uh, in this. I rely on um, a, a wealth of interviews, mostly of which are of men, so I've had to hunt for what women experience during this time. But uh, because it's such a, it's still a painful thing to talk about. And uh, I have a Dene friend who um, said that, you know, it would have really opened up old ones to have mm -hmm. gone back in and asked these uh, old, older women to talk about their experience of loss. When Charlotte Frisbee uh, did a life history of a woman, uh, Rose Mitchell, and also her husband, uh, I guess that was the first one they interviewed, was Frank Mitchell, who was a very important blessing with singer. Frank Mitchell was one of the people who implemented this program, and his entire discussion of this episode takes up two paragraphs of a 500-page book. Uh, and the same is true with Rose Mitchell. She mentions it briefly, pain, how painful it was for um, her husband to be treated as a pariah in the community for helping with this program. And that was like one or two paragraphs. It's just too painful to even think about. So there hasn't been that, enough distance, perhaps. Um, did alluvial uh, conservationists in the 30s in any way consider irrigation as a possible solution to irrigation? You know, when I drive through the lens, it, it seems that there are irrigation projects now, but were they, it wasn't feasible, it wasn't considered that we had irrigation and could water the grasses. At the time, I talked a lot about this, and in fact, the irrigation program that exists now that's called the um, Navajo Indian Irrigation Project is um, a, an outcome of the New Deal. They, part of what they did, the conservationists, is they went and surveyed the entire reservation for their forestry resources, for their irrigation potential, and so forth. And they identified an area where the uh, NIIP is now uh, as a potentially good place for an irrigation project, and they didn't have the money for that. Well, actually, they started a small project towards the end of the 1930s that was called the Fruitland Project. And um, they start off by promising people, this is another way in which people felt ripped off though. They promised people if they would get rid of all of their livestock except for the horses that they needed for their family. And you know, there's a set amount that you could get for a given size family. 
um, that they would get rid of all their sheep, they would get 20 acres of irrigation land. And when they found out how many people applied for the irrigation land, they then said, oh, well, never mind, 10 acres is how much you'll get. And so people felt like they had the wool pulled over their eyes on that. It's no pun intended. But, uh, but it's not until um, the Chama River Project um, that Dennis Chavez championed for uh, Albuquerque and Hispanic farmers that Napa's become sort of a subsidiary beneficiary of that project uh, in the 19, I think in the 1950s is when that bill was passed. I was wondering what happened to the stories of good or neutral experiences with livestock production in the 1930s because it seems that the story that you tell, if I understand it correctly, is just like the absence of this traumatic memory um, in, in a particular place or in a particular ritual. The experience of trauma, the, me the collective memory of trauma <coughs> has been written over this event. Well, and it's clearly done. And I'm just wondering if, if you know how it was that that happened and how it was that the voices that said, well, actually, this was a beneficial beneficial experience or an experience of luxury or what was it you were walking, walking in the meat. Yeah. yeah. What happened to those voices and why didn't they become, why didn't they meet the others, I guess? I, I, I think that the regions that experienced uh, a lot of trauma, which were typically also those regions that had the lowest permit sizes, around Shiprock and the whole northern third of the reservation and over to Black Mesa area, if you know anything about the geography of the area, they uh, were both the remotest from the shipping points, so they were the most likely to have these horrific kinds of events happen. And I, I don't know why they, how they come to dominate it. When Ruth Russell creates her book, there's only maybe three stories out of 30 or 40 that say anything neutral or positive about what was going on. And, and, and I think none of them say anything positive about it. They, they simply um, say there was, the range was over great. The only place I found was at Canada, where the Hubble Trading Post exists, and it's now a national monument to the University of the Park Service. And they've done a series of interviews, and I was shocked. I expected to find these same kinds of stories. And I was shocked that in Ganado, most people just never even mentioned it. And five wars after five wars of discussions of history. No mention at all of this episode, except for Lincoln Tully and a few other people who just mention it briefly as though it's a painful thing that they cannot talk about. Um, but I would say as far as how it, and I think that this became the dominant memory of their experience during the New Deal itself. And with, uh, you can see a pattern where in early meetings with the uh, Collier and his men, there are a number of Navajos who acknowledge Navajo leaders who acknowledge that um, there is overgrazing, that they need to be, do something about it, and so on and so forth. But as this program gets implemented and they see the resistance and response of their own communities that have women, I don't tell the story in this episode of all of the rebellion that fled on women. Uh, on the reservation that um, they, even the people who early on supported the program, they're, they're trying to get the New Dealers to 
figure out a way to do this that won't be so painful, and the new dealers continually become stubborn. You can see them sort of digging in their heels and saying, sorry, this is the way it's going to happen. And the more that happens, the less support <coughs> these people who are supporting at first have for it, and even at the end, they become part of the resistance of it. And so, you know, there's really no, no opening except for, like I say, a few people like Lincoln Tully and so forth who were who were correct and statutory, and I find that really interesting, but I found very, very little evidence for that. Yes. You opened with a story about um, how they were doing livestock adjustments in the 1990s. How did, what is going on today, I guess? They reduced, uh, there were lots of people who sold off their livestock then and reduced it, and it just depends. It seems to me that um, the uh, numbers of livestock tend to fluctuate with changes in rainfall patterns and such, and so in good years, like after 1996, the next year had high rainfall, tall grasses, taller than, I, I, so tall that it was like, oh, I couldn't imagine that this was ever like this. I've never seen a reservation look like that. And so then that seems to uh, encourage people to think, oh, you know, we can stop, we can have more stock. There's also been a shift from sheep towards cattle as part of this, and that's a more complicated story. I don't have time to really get into, but... Um, but I'd say they, they're keeping it around the permitted, permitted levels now. Uh, it strikes me, you know, overall. But um, the thing is, is that the reservation has deteriorated since the 1930s. That's clear. And it had even been recognized by the 1940s that uh, more deterioration had happened. And the actual carrying capacity of the land was probably two-thirds of what they had originally estimated. When I called uh, just six months ago to ask the Navajo Grazing um, Department what the permitted levels are now. It's still the, that higher number that was given in the mid-1930s by the New Dealers. It's never been adjusted to reflect new changes in, uh, in the carrying capacity based on the forage. So, um, the people are still, I, I guess I would say that there's this cultural connection to having sheep, particularly uh, but cattle in general, that's still really important. It's part of a way of claiming land on the reservation, which is held communally. And, uh, and it's part of people who have livestock permits always try to keep some sheep on there because they don't want to lose their permit because it is their legacy to pass on to somebody. So there's still a, a real desire to hang on to some. And I think that's part of why the Chura movement is so... Um, Popular is not quite the right word, but so enticing uh, to people. Because not, not everybody has adopted uh, bringing back children or sheep, but uh, you know it has this cultural resonance that I think really people are responding to. Okay, question? If you talk about them bringing back the children sheep, do they have specific areas where they just kept them and bred them, or are you talking about just reintroducing them back? Uh, yeah, that's interesting because they had started uh, introducing hybrids or, or uh, other breeds, uh, Merinos, uh, Rambulets, Coriadales, um, even early on, as, at least as early as 1910. I can't remember if it's early <coughs> um, and But not with a real concerted program at it, but there's kind of a haphazard hybridization program that's going on in the early 19th century, or early 20th century. And then... Um, 
So when the New Dealers actually come uh, with a program that's the Sheep Breeding Laboratory that's at uh, Fort Wingate, uh, which is near Grants, and they um, they want to revive, they want to create a hybrid that, like as I said, would uh, have the good qualities of the wool but have, be more meaty so that the animal would also sell on the market. And they go up to Navajo Mountain, which is a really still a remote place, and there's still there's very little hybridization has taken place. And they take their sheep down to Fort Wingate and try this experiment that doesn't work very well because uh, they find out they can't get the wool, the good quality of the wool through the hybrids, and they're still not the meat that they want. And so they give up on that. And I don't know how, quite how. There must have been some remnants that still had enough of the charitable qualities. And there's a guy, um, uh, uh, his name is Lyle McNeil at uh, Utah State University that began this revival of the children program and he found some sheep and he's been breeding for the characteristics that are supposed to be uh, classic Chura qualities. And it's become a huge movement. There's as many people in Vermont and Oregon on Chura sheep as Navajos own them because the sheep is so good for weeding. And it's also naturally lean land, so or nothing. Any other questions? Can you say a little bit more about how or whether you see the Navajo yourselves as having shaped some of the events in the place? They were um, despite the being kind of memory that was created here, they were very much uh, actors in shaping a lot of the events. Both at the tribal council level, there were uh, for every every action that the conservation or John Collier took was made with the approval of the so-called approval of the Navajo tribal council. So you see him coming before them with all the plans for the different production programs, all the plans for sheep breeding, this or that, or it might be the irrigation project, all this asking for their approval and debating with them. And they very much try to shape the program in the course of that debate. But what you also see is um, these men come to these meetings, uh, get sort of browbeaten by fire, or he promises them things. One of the key things that he promises is that if they will show their, that they are responsible for the environment by reducing their livestock, he will get Congress to uh, expand the boundaries of the reservation to include the checkerboard on the western edge where it's in New Mexico to take in crown points and almost to keep uh, where the boundary would have been drawn. And he does this with, uh, at a time initially when he thinks that um, Congress will probably expand that reservation. And uh, so the, the tribal council makes all kinds of agreements thinking that, that this land is the trade-off for that. And uh, then Bronson Cutting, the senator from New Mexico, is killed in an airplane crash and his replacement, Dennis Chavez, despises his father and does everything he can to thwart and successfully to thwart the expansion of the reservation, which would have affected Hispanic ranchers who are living on the Shepherd River. And also big uh, Anglo ranching operations that are using the Shepherd Board seasonally. And so um, so we see them try to shape that, but they lose in that. And then we also see them, they make agreements at these council meetings, they go home, and then we see them come back at the meetings and say, well, 
let's think about this again. And you can kind of read between the lines and see that they've gone home, present, they've been told to present their plan or to get the community's input on how they're going to do the reduction. And they are told, you are not taking my goats or you're not taking my horses. And come back to Collier to try to uh, craft some kind of a compromise. And so they're constantly working with him to create a new program. And then the Navajo women, they are attending meetings, they're hanging outside, they are meeting with the councilmen, and you hear, you see snippets in the record of them having uh, big angry confrontations with the councilmen. They have petition drives in which they show up at what are called chapter houses, which are sort of the local community, governmental, and civic centers. And um, they will uh, create these petitions where they sign or they put their thumbprints, mm -hmm. most of them can't write English, or, and uh, with that, somebody writing their names. But so they weren't allowed to vote at these Women were not part of the tribal council itself, if that's what you mean. Yeah. They could vote for who went at about midway through the program, Collier decides he doesn't like the council, uh, and that he will, uh, he, so he asked for an election to have a new council put in place. The initial council is sort of hand-clipped, and he decides, well, well, these guys aren't cooperating, so we'll get somebody else. And uh, women vote in those elections. They also vote, one of the big things that happens is he is hoping to get them now host like all uh, Native tribes to approve the Indian Reorganization Act, which is the, this key piece of New Deal legislation supposed to give self-determination to each tribe. They have to vote to want it. Uh, and it, it creates different structures for self-determination and economic development. And the Navajos see that, uh, and women vote in this election, the Navajos see this as a um, referendum on Collier's policies, and they vote for it in some places, these places that have the memories of walking and meat, they vote for it in those, but in all of the areas that had widespread resistance or that had um, low stock uh, permanent levels, they vote soundly against um, the Indian Reorganization Act. So there's lots of ways in which they try to push at Collier, but he starts, and he's a really interesting character because he starts out uh, wanting very much to be a, a good guy. He's the best Indian Commissioner of Indian Affairs ever, except for perhaps Ada Deer, who becomes commissioner in the 1990s under Clinton. And, um, and he has all of these hopes of religious revival and uh, in terms of native religions and um, cultural revival. And he sees the Navajos as being they're going to be the centerpiece of this whole program. But as they begin resisting the livestock reduction, you see him become more and more resistant to them. And, uh, and so they're just pushing back at each other the whole way. And, but John Collier has a high price, all of us. You know, and he constantly goes before them and says, what do you think I think about this? And as they start resisting in the meetings, he says, you know what, we can force this on me. I don't have to ask for permission. The law gives me the permission to just shove this down your throat, but I'm not doing that. I'm just going to ask for your input. And they were writing on the wall. Last time they resisted, they were shoved off to the Boston Redondo. You know, so they see this, and he sometimes refers to things like that. You see them putting two and two together that they could lose their land, perhaps, if they don't cooperate with him. 
they don't see him as their savior at all. Any other questions? Yeah. What do you think inspired you the most to write your novel? Um, not an awful, but it might work. Yeah. Um, what inspired me the most? Well, when I started off, I I spent a lot of time traveling through Navajo country, and I wondered what role Navajo might have played in shaping what looked to me to be a pretty desolate landscape. And uh, there's a couple of other histories that have been written on this, and I noticed that they always seem to care about what the men did, and here was a Navajo society full of powerful women, and I wondered what role natural women had in this whole story. And just that I thought when I started this, actually, that I would become really bored with this. I was kind of worried that it would uh, be something that wouldn't sustain my interest. I'm not sure why I was worried about that, but I was, and it still fascinates me. But um, so I guess trying to figure out what it, you know, how they shape the landscape, whether or not it was really overgrazed or whether it was just drought that was causing the problem. Um, and, um, and thinking hard about, was this inevitable? The way it's always been portrayed is that this, this whole thing was inevitable, it was unavoidable. And I really, I guess I just couldn't believe that. And so I tried to, to look hard to see what alternatives existed at the time that were in the minds of the Navajos and the minds of the dealers that might have shaped a different outcome. Those kept me going. And just those wonderful stories and digging for women, evidence of women in the records. It's very hard. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And uh, every time I found something really cool, I mean, just time and again, I found, oh, here's a really cool thing, and if I can use my imagination. But the greatest thing, I showed you those documents at one point, and those uh, had one that had these thumbprints. I came across these in the Chavez papers, which are at UNM, and I was like, these boxes of these. And I thought, what is it that I could do with these particular documents? What do they tell me? And as I started looking at them, I could see that they, that the thumbprints were clustered with, first of all, about more than 50% of the thumbprints are by women. And you could see them clustered in groups. And so I began imagining them standing there in line or getting together and uh, going and putting their thumbprint on and telling Collier what they thought, you know, and saying, don't execute my horses or whatever. Uh, so uh, those kinds of things really kept me going the whole time. Any other questions? I want to thank Dr. Weisinger for an exquisite presentation. Thank you so much. Do you need a ride? Do you have a ride home? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Forgot to give me the beginning. That was absolutely fascinating. No wonder you think you're a novel. There was a lot of people in the big storyteller. <laughs>